Welcome to Behavior Grooves, the podcast that explores human behavior through a behavioral science lens. I'm Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. Behavioral Grooves explores why we do what we do with researchers, authors, and practitioners in a conversational setting. We distill the insights from those conversations so that you might be able to apply a little bit of what we discovered to your work or home life. And that's the key part of this, Tim. You and I have conducted behavioral science field experiments and have years of practical applications behind us. We've had corporate jobs and client gigs that have helped us understand the nuances of real life applications that guests talk about in each episode. And that's partly why we have our grooving session after the conversation with our guest to help you get some application ideas that you may or may not have picked up in the conversation that we had. Yeah, thanks. And 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 add to add to that, you know, we've completed hundreds of podcast interviews with researchers, authors, and practitioners from every continent on Earth. Well, except for Antarctica, Tim. Uh, we, we haven't done Antarctica yet. Okay. Well, we've talked about the application of behavioral science for men and women from every continent that has a nation on it. How about that? Does that does that work? Okay. <laughs> good enough all right i just want to make sure that we're clear with our listeners that we're not saying we've done every continent we just every continent just a six on it six I of play. the seven there you go that's good all right so in this episode we're talking to the very remarkable rob leonard he may not be a household name but i'm pretty sure that you're going to recognize some of his work oh yes you will Rob Leonard received his PhD from Columbia University, and he founded and directs the graduate program in forensic linguistics at Hofstra University, where he is professor of socio and forensic linguistics. And he is fluent in several languages, including East African Bantu. Okay, uh, two questions for you. <laughs> what is East African Bantu and what are forensic linguistics, Kurt? Let's start with the second one. Okay. 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 All right. Forensic linguistics is the analysis of language after it's been spoken or written in a legal arena. So to give you an example, Rob worked on a murder case of Joan Bennett Ramsey by analyzing the ransom note. And Rob testified that it had not been written by the man who falsely confessed to her murder. Not only has he worked to solve cases in the U.S. with the FBI, but he's also worked with Canada and U.K. law enforcement agencies as well. And he's worked on big corporate cases between Microsoft and Apple by carefully analyzing the way emails were written. It's actually pretty fascinating stuff, Tim. Yeah, yeah. I I, I couldn't agree more. Uh, I, I sh want to get back to this East African Bantu, that it's a tribal language that some of us might recognize as Swahili. And it has 18 gender classifications, which kind of blows me away. Mm -hmm. But in short, Rob fell in love with it very early on. And among several other languages, he became fluent in it. Um, and while that's all pretty cool, there is one thing that makes Rob stand out from nearly everyone on the whole planet. What? He, what, yeah. what is that? Well, he was in a band that was one of 32 acts that played at Woodstock in August of 1969. And to top that off, he and his band, which is called Sha Na Na, played at the request of Jimi Hendrix. <laughs> John Anna was the last band to go on and perform before Jimi went on to play one of his most memorable performances with the unforgettable rendition of the Star Spangled Banner on his Fender Stratocaster. I mean, oh my. That, 
Oh my God. I know. Pretty, pretty crazy. Rob is truly one of the most amazing people that we've ever spoken to. And we want to thank John Levy for introducing us. Yeah. So with that, we encourage you to get your shanana on and enjoy our conversation with Rob Leonard. Rob Leonard, welcome to Behavioral Grooves. Thanks a lot, guys. Great to be here. I love this podcast. <laughs> we are glad to have you. We've got a speed round to get started with. Uh, actually, uh, Kurt, you, do you want to get you started? To start? I will start. So, all right. So, Rob, if you had, when, when we get to travel again, would you rather travel on a fixed itinerary or no itinerary at all? Fixed. Fixed. You had to okay. think about that. That wasn't that wasn't like an immediate. Well, you know, oh, I'm, what, the, I'm the no itinerary guy. I'm the, what, what in linguistics we call polar questions, usually yes, no questions in interrogations, um, as always leave out all context. So <laughs> I'm dying to go to certain places. So if that's fixed, okay. Uh, if it's not, okay, then I'll do a non-fix. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Well, we're sorry course about these. You would read it. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're sorry about these first questions because they will be those, <laughs> okay. those didatic kind of mm-hmm. now, now I'm nervous about the next question. <laughs> <laughs> Go oh, for it. Dead airspace there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, so w- would you prefer to live a year without your laptop or a year without your mobile phone? Laptop. Oh, mm. interesting. Okay. Cool. Which gig would you rather relive? A bar in College Town or Woodstock? Woodstock. Oh, see there, that was a quicker that answer. That was quick. That, that yep. was n- yeah. Not not that first kind of <laughs> times where you guys are out I'd there. Pay more a- attention. <laughs> <laughs> okay. More on that later. More on that later. Sure. So last speed round question. Is it possible to determine guilt or innocence from the way someone speaks? No. No. So tell us about that. Yeah, well, I mean, again, you know, from the way, what does that mean? That's all context. If they lie through their teeth and they say they were there Tuesday and then they say they weren't there Tuesday, odds are one of those is a lie. Um, so, you know, uh, but I responded that way because people are sold a bill of goods very, very often. Um, I see all these YouTube videos on X certain kind of agent uh, reveals all the secrets of how to tell when, you know, somebody's something. <laughs> right. and yeah. it, it just doesn't work that way. There are techniques that have been really carefully worked out, mostly discarded uh, for detailed analyses of, uh, of what people say and like that, but it, it, there's just no magic wand and all of the research that studies College students being able to see if somebody's lying, um, grizzled, uh, homicide detective, et cetera, et cetera. Everybody's the same. It's uh, You might as well flip a coin. Yeah. Okay? So uh, then you have these bogus um, magic wand machines like voice stress analyzers, which are, according to every forensic phonetician I have ever read or spoken to, absolute total frauds. The only evidence that they work that these people can bring to bear is that they have been able to sell them to 15,000. <laughs> really, really. I mean, these police, these police agencies are desperate to do their job. 
They yeah. want sure. to be able to convict the the guilty and and let the innocent go free. And they are sold a bill of goods. And they they there are many many TV specials about this. Uh, you know, uh, investigative reporting. $15,000 machines that you then have to keep on getting training in. And it's just like those things we had the little kids, uh, black uh, ball, and you'd shake it and the answer <laughs> the magic really, eight ball. Yeah, the eight yeah, ball. Right, yeah, the magic yeah. eight ball. But unfortunately, here, the magic eight ball is putting people in prison for the rest of their lives. Ugh. But when you're putting people in jail for the rest of their lives, that's not fine. So for our listeners, can you? Tell them what a forensic uh, linguist, forensic linguist is, and what mm-hmm. you do. What 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 is this thing that you are learning language and figuring out all these things? Forensic linguistics is linguistics. So linguistics is the science that studies language, typically human language, but other uh, information sharing systems, you might say as well. Um, it's a science. It's uh, recognized by uh, American Academy of Sciences. We get NSF grants, you know, uh, in just about any major university, you can major in it or get a PhD in it. And I have a PhD from Columbia University. I have an MA and MPhil and PhD in uh, linguistics. And my specialties were twofold. One, theoretical semantics, which tries to model and explain how these noises you and I are making from our pulmonary cavity pumping air through our vocal folds and then various shapes of our oral cavity are being interpreted as meaning. And if you think about it, there are very few things in the world more different than meaning and sounds. It is so unobvious. But you see, people, luckily, or you know, we trip all the time, just like they don't know about all the muscles that are firing in their legs when they walk to go make themselves a peanut butter sandwich. We just open our mouths and out comes the language. So to us, it seems that it's something as simple as pushing a wheelbarrow, let's say. But what we're really doing, and the more we study it in depth, the more we believe this uh, metaphor, it, it, what I always say is it's like rocketing a I mean, uh, driving a spaceship in five dimensions at the same time. That's truly how complicated human language is. So my other specialty is sociolinguistics, which analyzes the way people actually use language in their daily lives, in the real world, in the wild, as opposed to just thinking up sentences and wondering whether, uh, I don't know, is this grammatical? Is that grammatical? Does this obey that rule? As has been the dominant um, uh, theory of linguistics for the past maybe 60 years. So sociolinguistics is data-driven, very evidence-based, as is the theories of um, semantics that I uh, use, which uh, is is, uh, in the general field of functional linguistics. So using data observing the non-random distribution of language data, we try to explain what patterns we do see, what patterns we don't see, why, what are the effects of the environment, of the of the type of language, of the intents, although we don't analyze intent per se, the topics, it, it just a, a tremendous swirl of things. So that's linguistics. And when we turn our attention to language data that comes from the legal arena, that has come to be called forensic linguistics. Mm. 
you mentioned a, a thought that that really attracted my attention, Rob. You talked about the non-random distribution of language. Could mm-hmm. you could you explain that uh, in, in what you mean by that? Sure. I mean, we don't typically, as speakers of English or whatever language, think of it that way. But that's exactly what it is, and you can argue that every science uh, attempts to explain and sometimes predict. Uh, and sometimes only to describe the non-random distribution of its data. I mean, bullets don't randomly come out of muzzles. Uh, Chemical concentrations don't randomly diffuse in human bodies. Uh, And everything about language is non-random. So the way we know we're speaking English and not, say, French, is because of these strings of sounds uh, that are non-randomly oh. not French. You see what I mean? And then yeah. you keep shrinking it down to a smaller and smaller concentric circles. So we're also speaking American English because of the patterns of our speech, you see, and our pronunciation. And we're not speaking Southern English or we're not speaking um, uh, London English. And down, 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 and uh, that's that's another one of the dimensions that I was talking about. Uh, that's fascinating. Thank you for that because that uh, I, I I've never thought about it from that way. Uh, also, you don't just do this uh, sociolinguistic work in English only. You've worked oh. in other languages. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, and I think that your career is fascinating from this perspective. Can you talk a, a little bit about how you go from? for instance, from the United States to Africa (laughs) on on your journey? Sure. Well, um, as you guys know, I was in a uh, rock group when I was in college at Columbia College. And um, so I would go from being a normal schlubby college student by day (laughs) to being teen angel in this gold lame (laughs) costume at night, hobnobbing with, uh, with, uh, Jimi Hendrix and Janice Joplin, who I used to drink wine with all the time in L.A., backstage at the Fillmore West. It was quite something. Anyway, but it was hard to go to classes. <laughs> <laughs> and in those days, we took classes Monday through Friday. So I wanted to begin another language. I was always interested in languages. I had been born into a Spanish-speaking area, and I was the only English speaker in my first grade class. That was in Brooklyn, by the way. And... Um, So all of the beginning languages at Columbia, some 55 languages were all taught Monday through Friday, except for one. And that was, no, the East African Bantu language. (laughs) (laughs) Which gets us to the Africa connection. Here we go. And and I, like most Americans, knew absolutely nothing about Africa. I, I always say to my students these days, the first day I walked into Swahili class, I couldn't have found Africa on a map, let alone you know anything else. That's not much I knew. I fell madly in love with the language. It has the if it were Spanish, we, it has eighteen of what if it were Spanish we would call genders. Okay, eighteen genders. Yeah, and they're grammatical genders. They're noun classes. They don't go by sex, but if you notice, you know they don't really in Spanish or French either. So yeah. the table is la mesa, but le table. So it's feminine in Spanish and masculine in French. Why? It's not because it's, it's gendered. It's a way of keeping track of things. Mm. Just like singular and plural and demonstratives and all that jazz. So Swahili and most Bantu languages just really do it in depth and 
three of these noun classes or these genders have to do with different aspects of space and time. So uh, it was just fabulous. And here I was already interested in linguistics as a science, and I fell madly in love with Swahili. And then when I went to graduate school, we had to specialize in a language. As they used to say, look, everybody has to specialize in a different language. If we were urban sociologists, we would not all study Detroit now, would we? Mm. All right. So some people did, uh, you know, uh, French, uh, English. Okay. Boring. Uh, Japanese, Spanish, and I did uh, Swahili. So then at the end of uh, my uh, studies, I realized, hmm, I should try to go to Kenya or Tanzania and do sociolinguistic uh, field work. And by now I was out of the group. Um, well, and the way I got out of the group finally was twofold. Everybody I knew started dying of overdoses mm. of, of heroin and you name it. And at that very moment, Columbia offered me a full free ride through to the PhD. Wow. Yeah. And I That's said, fantastic. gosh, yeah, yeah, I'm never going to come back to that crossroads again. So uh, with a heavy heart, I I went to graduate school and, and uh, finally quit the group. So, yeah. so uh, when I got ready to write my dissertation, I applied for a Fulbright fellowship and um, was lucky enough to get it. So I went over to Kenya for one year, and I stayed for six or seven. I just loved it in, in East oh Africa, best place in the world. And I got into speaking Swahili really was a door opener, as you can imagine. And I wound up in places and situations and on little sailing ships uh, in the Lamu archipelago up by the Somali border that I never would have even imagined existed in the world. And the East Africans are such fabulously generous, nice people. And I, I just never wanted to leave. And I wound up running a research institute in, in the hinterland for a while. And then I finally came back to the U.S. And uh, I had my doctorate and then wandered into forensic linguistics through another just odd turn of events. And how the hell did you finish a degree while being in a rock band? <laughs> that's okay. But that, that's secondary. Amazingly, I did better. Great. I, I, I made Phi Beta Kappa and graduated <laughs> with honors. Yeah. I, I did better the years I was in Shanana than when I wasn't. Because sometimes if you have two things to do, you do them better than if you only have one, if you know what I mean. Yeah, I, mean, I had Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday to do seven days of work. And I had really better buckle down and do it. And I envied the guys who had dropped out of college uh, by then, uh, you know, by my bandmates. But um turned out to be pretty good. So, Well, let's, let's, I want to get to that part too. But before we go there... You said you you were interested in linguistics from the beginning. So what was it? What it seemed like an early age, and it doesn't seem like that's necessarily something that I don't know. And when I was in high school, I didn't know that you could study linguistics, or even in college, it wasn't until much later that it came that that was even a spot on that radar for me. So just wondering how you got interested. Absolutely, me too. I, I actually was jumping over a few things to, to say that I was interested in linguistics. 
nobody's ever heard of linguistics. It's a fabulously well-kept piece. <laughs> um, my colleague at Hofstra, fabulous, brilliant, brilliant linguist, uh, uh, Dr. Tammy Gales, whom I spirited away from University of Wisconsin and have worked well over 100 cases with, uh, she uh, always says, her favorite line is, nobody needs a linguist. Uh, nobody knows, sorry. Nobody knows they need a linguist. But everybody needs a linguist. Um, <laughs> there are just so many aspects of human life that revolve around, gosh, language, right? Yeah. And especially when you are in the law. What in the law is not language? Mm -hmm. From confessions, interrogations, to testimony, to uh, up opinions, to uh, statutes. Everything has language in it. So nobody's ever heard of linguistics. I had no idea linguistics ever uh, existed. I just liked languages because I was in that uh, monolingual Spanish first grade uh, briefly, but it, it, it made quite an imprint on me. And uh, years later, when I was managing a bakery in San Juan, uh, before I went to Africa, I realized that my accent in Spanish was Puerto Rican. Mm. Even though my entire career of, of taking Spanish in, you know, junior high school and high school and college and everything, I was taught by non-Puerto Ricans. And uh, Puerto Rican uh, dialect is not the, uh, the, the, the dialect that you learn in school um, and certainly not the dialect that my eighth grade teacher, Senorita Weintraub, uh, taught me. You know. <laughs> <laughs> but my brief stint in that first grade class really imprinted itself on me. But I didn't realize that till I was a linguist and could evaluate my own dialect. At Columbia, I discovered that there was this thing called linguistics. And when I looked into it, I said, oh, my God, so many linguists have this exact same story. I didn't know that there was actually a field that incorporates everything that I love to study in the entire world, you see? And until the linguistics per se is reified, you, you can't even conceive it. It's just like not having a word for something. You know what I mean? <laughs> you would know about that. There you go. <laughs> yeah. So forensics. So you said then there's, then there's another kind of story of but getting you into the forensic linguistic right. aspect of this. So right. let's hear that. So as I was a professional linguist, a linguistics professor, I would occasionally get asked by lawyers to look at a case and uh, give them my opinion of a contract or something like that. So imagine uh, we three are homicide detectives and we are called to the scene of a crime and there's a dead body. And I say, I don't know, Tim, I don't know, Kurt, when do you think he died? And uh, we nudge him with our foot. And pick up his hand, say, I don't know, six six hours ago? I don't know. Seven, uh, seven and, hours. Yeah, we say, yeah. okay. And then we say to the <laughs> uniformed guys on the beat, round up everybody who was here at seven, beat a confession out of them. That is unfortunately the state of our analysis of language. And it's because we use language so innately, but we do it without formal understanding of how language works and how it can go off the rails, and how it can communicate, and how it can miscommunicate, and all that. The only formal training the vast majority of us get in language is starts in eighth grade uh, grammar, and also we, in English courses, and, and the, this is their uh, portfolio, we are taught how to write standard English. Yeah. That's what, we're not taught how language actually works in the real world. We're not taught 
all the different dialects there are and their different uh, grammatical systems and like that, we are taught. Look, when I teach Swahili these days, I teach standard Swahili until, you know, a couple semesters in. And then we start going into Kenyan versus Tanzanian. And if you're in the local and this and there's this great teenage slang, an urban slang called Shang that has uh, erupted in uh, East Africa. A, a really interesting stuff. But that's not, you know, what you you do. People don't understand how it works. Now, lawyers and judges are fabulous linguists in their own right on certain aspects of how language works, but they have a totally different toolkit than we do. And we can see patterns that people who have not had, uh, I've had as many years of graduate study as the brain surgeon I know. We can sort of, uh, to use another metaphor, lift up the cover of the language and see what's going on underneath. And we can infer that there are certain patterns happening here that we then test for and we find. And I'll give you a pretty simple example. We speak about certain topics, and that's one way we have conversation cohere, right? I mean, if I start speaking about baseball in the middle of talking about Africa in the 1970s or something, right, it just doesn't work. In conversations, and we have a lot of research on how conversations work, how narratives work, etc., somebody will introduce a topic, and then other people will either support that topic or not support that topic. Maybe the person will reintroduce the topic. Maybe we don't support that topic. Maybe we're forced into supporting it for a little while, but then we gradually ease out of it, okay? You could have probably even said that to people, and they still wouldn't have necessarily gone, what do you mean? No, he was talking that. It wasn't until you could actually visually show it, I think, that that made probably a big difference. Is, would that be the case? A hundred percent. Also, because... The default is to assume normal conversation. And mm. normal conversation, we know from studying conversations till the cows come home, <laughs> rest on cooperation. Because most of the information that is transmitted in a conversation does not come from the words that a speaker says. They come from the mind of the listener. Mm. And for that to be a successful conversation, you have to assume cooperation. There's a thing that we use all the time. A uh, man named Grice came up with a cooperative principle. And he said the maxims of successful conversations are quality, quantity, relevance, and manner. Say that which you believe to be true. Give enough information, but not too much information. Say only that which is relevant and say things in a clear manner. And these are the rules of successful conversation. It's not like people are taught these rules. This is what you get imbued with. And this is the finding this non-random distribution of data, you see? Right, right. We linguists have a hard road to hoe compared to a lot of other uh, forensic scientists. Because once you explain this topic thing, everybody says, oh, well, that's obvious. <laughs> <laughs> of course it is. Right. It's obvious yeah. now. Yes. Uh, yeah. What, what do we need him for? You know, <laughs> so the, the opposing lawyers always say, judge, what do we need Leonard for? You speak English. <laughs> so I have this four sentence thing that I got from an excellent book on how we take meaning from reading. And John was on his way to school last Friday. He was really worried about the math lesson. Okay. Who is John, guys? 
John would be the student in my head as exactly. you're saying that. Yeah. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Sure, he's the student schoolboy. So how is he going to school? He's Normal. walking or riding the bus. That's right. Exactly, walking or riding the bus. So we've communicated so far, but have we? Is he on the bus or is he walking? Is he skydiving? Doesn't say he isn't skydiving. Is he two feet tall? Is he eight feet tall? How, what color is his hair? How big is this bus? And we just communicated, God help us, okay? John was on his way to school last Friday. He was really worried about the math lesson. Last week, he had been unable to control the class. Now what is he? He's the teacher. He's the teacher. Okay. How's he going to school? In the car. Right. So I'm doing a training for Danish police. I ask this question. I say, now how's he going to school? And every single person in the audience says the exact same thing. What? On his bicycle. So this also teaches us something, that what is obvious default to one group of people is going to be different. So when I said that, I communicated that he was on his bike to those guys and in a car to you and me, okay? And there's a million other things that it could be too. Um, it had been unfair of the teacher to leave him in charge. Now what is he? Oh. Substitute teacher. Substitute student or, teacher. Yeah. Assistant teacher. So I used to do research with these four sentences, and I'd have people explain what they thought was going on. And this uh, one person said to me, I've never had an assistant teacher or a substitute teacher who couldn't control the class. But I know it's a thing. So I'm assuming that the person who wrote those sentences wanted me to understand that it was a substitute or a assistant teacher, okay? So this is also of great interest to us because it means that people negotiate what set of assumptions, what schemas we say in, in linguistics and in, uh, in other sciences, what narratives are you know, pre-recorded in our heads it's theory of mind. That's exactly where I was going. It's theory Absolutely. of mind. I have to understand what you're thinking in order to interpret the words that I'm reading in a way that's what she was doing. She's like, exactly. going, this substitute teacher for me is that's control. So that wouldn't fit. That wouldn't fit with what you just told me. But I know that's the, that's the kind of norm, the social agreed upon you know, element that's out there in our society. So therefore, I will make that assumption. Exactly. And as theory of mind goes, you can start multiplying it. So what do you <laughs> think that I think that you think that I think, right? And, and I've seen very, um, very interesting theories that it is because of theory of mind that language was so adaptive. Yeah. That when, you know, groups got big enough so that we had to know a uh, theory of mind with 15 different ways from Sunday. We could only do that through uh, audible language, but that's uh, not my, my area of expertise. Okay, so um, John was on his way to school last Friday. He was really worried about the math lesson. Last week, he'd been unable to control the class. It had been unfair of the math teacher to have left him in charge. After all, it's not a normal part of a janitor's duties. <laughs> oh! Oh! <laughs> Oh, just blew me out of the water on that See, one. See, that's the, the uh, which is every oh. good story because you're giving a twist and you're setting people up and then switching 
that to them. But again, but, you're studying how the language actually does that. Yeah. yeah. Well, and, and I didn't make up that story. These guys, I can't remember uh, the names of the authors. I wish I could. But it's on how we take um, meaning from reading. So it's the same thing. Yeah. Okay. So, but I use this on the stand in evidentiary hearings. And, you know, oh, okay, well, maybe there's a lot more to language than meets the eye. Maybe it isn't a wheelbarrow. <laughs> yeah, what, what, what's the saying? The uh, Was it Auden that said uh, the, the natural outcome of communication is misunderstanding? Sure Something is. Like, sure yeah. is. Because uh, even the best communication has tremendous amounts of misunderstanding, but it's okay. It's and why enough. is that okay? Yeah. Well, because it's good enough. And also because if people are cooperating, we can what we call repair things. Wait a minute. Uh, my wife, I thought you said to go left. <laughs> oh, oh, no, I meant to go left back there. Oh, okay. Sorry. My mistake, right? Yeah. But when it's not a cooperation, that's when you get deceit. That's when you get people tricking each other. That's when you get scam artists. That's when you get people lying. Um, yeah. yeah. And all these other things and taking we, advantage. We just talked with John Levy, you know, influencer, the, you know, sure. we interviewed him earlier this week and Brilliant he was talking guy. about yeah, influence yeah, and all of these <laughs> other factors that come in. And one of the things that he talked about that I, I found really fascinating is this idea of, you know, there's, there's different, he's, he, trust is key, but then there's, there's just the ability, you trust that you have the ability, you trust that it's truthful, and then it's the benevolence or the intent. And what you're just saying is really, it's like, all right, we have that misunderstanding. And as long as it's that first kind of ability or, you know, you didn't really know what you're talking about. You said left, but you really meant right. I, I forgive you. We'll work through it. It's only when it gets down into that benevolent, that intent, like, oh, you're trying to trick me somehow, that that then leads to where it does, it, it falls apart. Absolutely. Okay. That's right. Yeah. So, so, Rob, you're one of 32 acts that played in front of a half a million people at Woodstock. What's on your playlist these days? <laughs> I only listen to our own music. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> the Shanana, the Shanana playlist on, on loop. <laughs> and by, by the time we got on, uh, there wasn't a half million people there. Um, and uh, there's this great clip uh, of me singing Teen Angel on YouTube. And um, I wish I were more in tune, but that we spent the entire night on stage. Uh, mostly getting bumped by bigger bands who had decided <laughs> to helicopter in. So instead of "Oh baby," I was oh, "Baby," and when I sang, <laughs> when I sang "Teen Angel," I went so sharp. But still, it's great because the looks on the faces of those hippies—you could see them saying, "My God, I must be more stoned than I think." <laughs> <laughs> And then there's another version of that, which I love, uh, from the Fillmore East, where I am totally in tune. And uh, that was really interesting because the, the Fillmore East uh, was on, I guess, 8th Street. Uh, and it was this enormous vaudeville and then movie theater. And there are just must have be thousands of hippies. And they just went crazy over Shanana. They just 
loved it. They couldn't get enough. You know, just Sweet 16 and now you're gone. I mean, they would die. Nobody talked about Sweet 16 then. It was a more oh. brutal realism time, you know? Uh. And the great thing is that there was a photographer who did these photographs of the Fillmore East. There is standing in the audience is my brother who was standing up with this beatific smile on his face, his hands clasped together as he sees his brother perform Teen Angel, which he choreographed to every, every single thing that I did. Every pause, every tear was his invention. And next to him is my mother and father. Oh, my middle-aged mother, and my father in a jacket and tie, right? Because men wore jacket and tie in those days, surrounded by these stoned hippies, and everybody's <laughs> just digging it. I mean, it's just the greatest <laughs> photograph, you know. And oh, it really wow. sums up sums up my experience there. We were really overnight sensations. I mean, you look at overnight sensations in quotes. We really were an overnight sensation. Um, <laughs> We had an opportunity to actually perform for a record company executive. But all we were ever doing, we were Columbia Kingsman, uh, we were called, and we would play at the psych ward across the street at St. Luke's Hospital, <laughs> which, you know, was close. And Great gig. Yeah, it was an easy gig. But when those doors closed and locked behind you, <laughs> it, it, was, it was unnerving. And we'd play at, uh, you know, what were called in those days girls' schools. And we'd go there to various uh, girls' schools and perform there. And that was a lot of fun. And um, we didn't really have enough songs for the, uh, the um, record executive, record company executive, because he wanted to see us perform. And we barely had enough for a whole set. So we added 50s <laughs> doo-wop songs. We loved 50s doo-wop songs because they were great harmony, and we loved harmony, and I really loved it because I was second bass. And you don't get a lot of the modern uh, rock songs in those days with second basses. We added these doo-wop songs, these 50s songs, uh, what comes to be called greaser songs. Uh, and little did we know, but my brother uh, went around, and he was a couple years older. Uh, he was a grad uh, student in, in uh, English, uh, George Leonard, and he put ads in all the fraternity houses and everywhere. Hey, you kids, uh, we're going to have 50s stuff and come Greece. Now, you know, the 50s had not been uh, renovated yet, rejuvenated. There was <laughs> it no, was too close. It, 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 this is just the late 60s, right? Yes, but, you know, it, it was a different world, of course. And, indeed, we recreated a fictional 50s eventually, mm. which got picked up by Greece. You know, I mean, the 50s were not a very pleasant time. There was McCarthyism. There was every terrible thing in the world. But if you look at the 50s of Happy Days, of Greece, which we started. Matter of fact, uh, my group, Shana, was the uh, Sock Hop Band in the Grease movie. Yep. yep. And really, nobody used Grease. We used that term. And they picked it up for the uh, Broadway show. And we were all friends and everything uh, it, nobody was as litigious as they are now. Uh, so all these guys came greased. And we said, wow, this is really interesting. And then my brother said, okay, good. Now we're going to do another gig. And we said, yeah, let's do the same thing. And he said, no, no, no. He said, listen, 
I have an idea. Now, you know, we perform in Columbia Blazers and Tide. Oh, oh, almost like a glee club. Oh, no, exactly. We're a mini glee club. The glee club (laughs) is a bigger outfit. Sure. It's 1968, 69. You know, we talk about now being polarized. Well, this was the height of Vietnam. Mm. And realized that I had 25, at least, I think it's 25, of the guys that I went to high school died in Vietnam. Mm. And for what, you see? And there was a, a, a draft. So every single person, for example, at Woodstock, all the guys, had targets on their backs. Everybody did. Any male in the United States who was of a certain age had a target on their back. And this led to a lot of angst and, and fighting and, and over, some, over real stuff. Okay, so that had been the year before. And people sort of wanted to find some sort of commonality. I mean, I've read history books that attribute this to us, that we had created this Eden, this pre-Vietnam 50s Eden. So that was why the 50s, even though it was just a few years, was such an important thing. So my brother had these ads that said, uh, hey, you, you remember when you were uh, an eighth grade uh, uh, greaser standing on the uh, street corner smoking your camels? watching the seventh grade girls go by, you know, stuff like this. And, <laughs> and people really responded. But anyway, so he said, call the boys to your apartment because I was the leader of the group. I said, okay. So I did that. Here's my brother, all of, I guess, 23 at the time. And he says, boys, and he walks around pointing at everybody right in their face. He says, boys, I'm going to make you, and he points to everybody, rock and roll stars. <laughs> wow. So all of us said, oh, yeah, of course, George. Oh, <laughs> um, I have an early class tomorrow. He said, <laughs> and, and he explained that he was going to choreograph us. He was going to costume us. And we were going to be this fabulous, brand new avant-garde group. And uh, it was only later we became Sean Anna because uh, Kingsman uh, actual professional name was taken. So that's what he told us. And five months later, I am sitting in Steve Paul's scene on 48th Street. What was it? 46th Street or Faith Avenue, the most insider nightclub in all of New York City. It is so was so insider that it doesn't even have a Wikipedia page still. Can you imagine? Yet wow. this is where Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, uh, Mamas and the Papas, you, anybody who was famous musician when they had nothing else to do in new york or where they were done with their own kick they'd come down here it was subterranean it was like something out of a humphrey bogart movie and it really was amazing and it was tiny and totally smoke-filled and every famous person in the world was there and and they just didn't have entourages in those days so i'm we're sitting there we have been now the like the house band uh, the Village Voice newspaper and all these underground newspapers are just going crazy over us. This place, by the way, was half owned by Andy Warhol, who really understood avant-garde. Oh, yeah. And he really, really appreciated him, uh, us. And, and I met him at our press party. A uh, very interesting guy, as you can imagine. Five months later, I'm sitting there. And Jimi Hendrix, who has come to see us and is now about to get us into 
uh, Woodstock, not that I knew anything about Woodstock, is teaching me how to drink tequila, you know, with the lime and the, <laughs> I'm 19 or 20. I don't know. Oh what my God. Yeah. And Jimi Hendrix is, is, you know, sitting me, oh, Rob, yeah, this stuff and that's And I said, holy hell, George was right. <laughs> <laughs> so and, and i'm sure your brother has never let that pass by on a time when he has to tell you that right <laughs> that no actually i remind him of it more than i remind <laughs> <me>. <laughs> that's well, a I, fascinating I, story oh, that it yeah. was it was really this concept that your brother came up with that kind of puts you into that absolutely th that next level right and he choreographed us um, he, so the next gig we played was at Columbia, but fully dressed, uh, you know, the, uh, with the sleeves rolled up with the camel pack and the t-shirt, three of us were in gold lame dancing in front. That was one of my gigs. Uh, and we got those, uh, gold lame outfits from a defunct Bye Bye Birdie road <laughs> company. And, and we just were such a brand new thing that we just took everybody by storm and all the musicians really, really liked this because they had grown up with that music. They saw, we loved the music. They saw what we were doing the music. And also this was a time when very, very often a musician would sit with his back to the audience and play his uh, lead guitar. And we had 12 guys in costume doing what was actually vaudeville musical. Each of the 50 songs was a narrative. It was a plot. It was a story. And we would act that out. And I got the death songs. Um, and also my brother made it so I didn't have to grease my hair. So he, he wanted his his brother to look a little bit better than the other guys, you know. And, um, so I did uh, Tell Laura I Love Her and Teen Angel, especially, where, oh, yeah. you know, yeah, the, they're, they're out on a date and the car gets stalled on a railroad track. <clears throat> as they always do in songs, I guess. And I pulled you out and we were saved, but you went running back. What was it you were looking for that took your life that night? They said they found my high school ring clutched in your fingers tight. Uh, now, oh. there's people would say, are you dumping on these songs? I said, well, there is a little bit of absurdity inherent in this. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but we played it dead straight. And oh. and I'd say, you know, just sweet 16, and now you're gone. And I'd cr cry. I would go to my knees and cry. And the audience would just go crazy, you know? Oh, I love it. <laughs> Taking me away. I'll never, uh, just sweet 16, and now you're gone. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll never kiss your lips again. They buried you today, and oh, it, it was good. It was, and it was acting, and it was, and the people would tear the damn seats out of the uh, the the floor of the auditoriums. So we went everywhere, all over the place. And um, William Morris, a big agency, picked us up. A very good uh, record company with Thebes, and uh, we played California, Chicago, Texas. So. So we went from being the, uh, what would now be the Columbia College acapella group um, and, well, uh, Woodstock, not that I knew anything about Woodstock. Rob, thank you so much. We are so appreciative for all your time, 
this wonderful conversation. We have thoroughly enjoyed ourselves, and I think our listeners are going to enjoy it as well. So thank you very now, much. I think I've enjoyed it more than you guys have, so, <laughs> uh, uh, or at least as much. And I thank you for the uh, the really great conversation. Take care. Oh, this was this was fun, Rob. Thank you. Welcome to our grooving session where Tim and I groove on what we learned from our discussion with Rob, have a free-flowing conversation, and talk about whatever else comes into our gold LeMay suited up brains. <laughs> I didn't see you going there. That's yeah, well, <laughs> I, try to, I try to surprise every once in a while. Totally, totally. You, you absolutely did that. that so that so what would a gold LeMay suited brain look like? I mean, think about it. <laughs> well, it's going to be gold, right? Mm, it's going to be go. gold. Uh, it might be poisoned as well. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I'm just having this image in my head of this like brain kind of thing with a suit on it and, and little feet, you know, doing a dance move out there. Anyway. Left, left over from the Bye Bye Birdie show <laughs> on Broadway. <laughs> Which again is fascinating. And Rob, really, A, first off, I, I know we're going to talk about the forensic linguistics and, and the theory of mind and all of those factors of this. But my God, to be part of freaking uh, Woodstock, which is this, yeah. this element that we've all had this idea of what that means positive, negative, whatever it is, but it's an iconic moment in the United States. And even I think maybe the world of rock and roll and music and the counterculture and all of those factors. And to be part of that as a college student. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. And to be in it, he's there with a band that's only like three or four months old, something like that. <laughs> You know, it's not like he had been working his whole career for years to build up to it. And then, yes, he got invited to Woodstock, which was a pretty damn big deal even for them. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Okay. Yeah, it's pretty fantastic. Okay. Right. Let's let's talk about – and we, we, could, we can talk more about that because I think there's some other interesting behavioral things that go along with that. But let's start talking about linguistics is a science. It's right? a what? It's a <laughs> right, right. Like there was this part of me that's like, well, linguistics, it's how we talk, right? It's, it, it's just the way we, we make sounds with our voices. <laughs> <laughs> right. But our lips and tongue and throat and yep, that's it. No, it, no worries there. It is studied. It's a discipline. It is. And I love the fact that it's more than just linguistics. There's sociolinguistics and forensic linguistics. And thinking about the way that we use language and the way that we form words, Rob got me thinking about linguistics as more than just sounds and written words. I think it's really important because as you think about the words that we use and how they're structured and the formatting of the language and our sentence structures and all of those factors that is what they study, it lends a, a different perspective on who we are and why we behave the way we do. That the idea that the way that a language is constructed and the, the types of words that it has in it and how those words get interpreted are 
directly influencing the way that we think and the way that we behave. And that is fascinating. And when you look at some of the differences, and again, I I was not familiar with linguistics as a as a field of study. I knew it was out there. I'd heard of it, but did I really look at it? No, I hadn't. And so this this actual uh, this conversation with Rob really helped me look into this a little bit more. There's 18 different gender classifications in there. Right, right. Which just to, is just to keep the order of things. Not that there's 18 different genders, but but these are for classification purposes and you kind of go how do how or why did they do that? That it is either as a result of or informs how that culture is created mm-hmm. and therefore impacts how they view the world because the language that they have about it. Again, you go back to the Eskimos have how many 30 some different you know, ways of describing different types of snow. Yeah. And that is very different than the vast majority of people, but it's part of the world and the culture that they live in. And you can understand that person by studying the type of language and how they use that language, which is a really interesting piece. And then you get into the forensic side of this, right? Which is even Whoa, like the idea yeah. that you look at a, a ransom note and then you look at somebody who said, oh, I was the person who did it. And you're going, no, you're not. And it's not because you have DNA evidence. It's not because you have fingerprints. It's not any of that. It's that the way that you talk and structure your language is not the way that this person who wrote this note did, even to the point of if you're trying to fake it, that they can tell. That is fascinating for me. It, it is fascinating. And I think I took the idea of linguistic science for granted, honestly. But if we don't dive into something like linguistic science, if we don't dive into the sociolinguistics and analyze the way people actually use language in their daily lives in the real world, you know, or as Rob says, in the wild, we won't fully understand what that discipline can mean to us. And I think the parallel for me is behavioral science. If we're not doing a good job of applying what we can and, and digging into the discipline of behavioral science, we could be missing out on great opportunities to improve our lives in a whole variety of arenas, right? Yeah, I think there's this potential element of getting people interested. Behavioral science is the same way. Can we get more people to get, you know, that first taste that the, the sample, right, of, of the ice cream that is being handed out that you go, hmm, this is pretty good. Maybe I should have some more of this ice cream and being able to take that in the application. And I think you talked about this, this idea that if we can show how behavioral science impacts the real world or the wild, as opposed to just some funky lab studies that are out there that most people go, okay, cool, but so what? Those are the types of things that are really going to make that first taste test good and rewarding and wanting people to come back for more. Right, right. What else did you want to groove on, Kurt? Your 
mind? What are you thinking? What's going on? I'm trying to understand what is going on in Tim's head. Because if I understand what's going on in Tim's head, then I have a better ability to be able to make sure that I'm not pissing you off or that I'm doing the right thing. So you're talking about theory of mind. The theory of mind, T-O-M, this idea of looking for clues that are going to impart insight into what somebody else is thinking. And again, I had not thought of this in terms of linguistics. And yet I think what Rob brings up is that, yeah, the language that we use is really key part of this. And and he brings up this other contextual part, right? That That language if we only get parts of the language, then we make inferences from those and we don't understand the full context. And and language is uh, only as good as within the context that we understand it. Yeah. Yeah. I I thought his story, this, he called it the four sentence story, but I think in the end, it's actually five sentences. (laughs) (laughs) I think the fifth one is just an arbitrary one. You can add or not. Maybe that's it. Uh, That was so great as a way for me to think about the way we communicate so frequently in the office or in in zoom meetings right that we we just we start by saying well john was on his way to school last friday he was really worried about the math lesson and if we stop the story there we we're going to come away with a certain amount of assumptions that might not be correct because then we add in last week he was unable to control the class Now that changes the perspective on what it is. And then we add in and and we start thinking about one thing. And then if you go to, and it had been unfair that the math teacher left him in charge. Now that changes it again. And then after all, it's not a normal part of a janitor's duties. Wow. The story changes so dramatically. And it's not just storytelling. This is all we're actually trying to convey is sort of one one single thought, but the way that that thought gets presented allows my brain to check out and say, well, I, I, I'm going to make assumptions. I know what this is about. After the first two sentences, I know what's going on. And I could disregard the last two or three sentences and miss out on what the full meaning is based on these automatic and instantaneous judgments that I'm making along the way. And, and, and this is, I think, one of the challenges that we are going to make these automatic and instantaneous judgments without really getting into what is the speaker trying to tell us. And, and the way that the speaker is formulating what comes first and then what comes second, it's a good story, right? So I love this because it reminds me of a good movie that has twists and plot turns <laughs> and various different pieces and, ooh, that's yeah. the murderer. No, wait, don't oh, no, wait. This is something new. And it keeps us interested. It's a very different story, however, if this, if you would have said, um, John, the janitor, was on his way to school last Friday. He was really worried about the math lesson. You know, okay. And again, that brings some intrigue, but it's a different point. You are not assuming that John is a student. You are not assuming that he's worried. Like, is he, is he worried because he is taking the math class or not? But you don't put that as he's a eight, nine, 10 year old kid who is going into the math class and is worried about math and taking a test or whatever it would be. And that is important 
as you said, when we think about business and we think about what it is that we're trying to achieve with our corporate communications, either out to our consumers or to our employees as we're moving forward. In mm-hmm. particular, and this is the world that you and I live in, the employee aspect of this has big connotations about what are the inferences that are made by the employee, which again gets into this theory of mind. So if a CEO comes out and says something along the lines of, we need you to work harder and more diligently because we are facing uh, new challengers in our market. Okay. But as an employee, what we're doing is we're trying to infer what that meaning is. What is the CEO thinking? And is the CEO thinking like, this is an opportunity for us? Or is this, are we going to go out of business in six months because this new competitor has come into place? And that puts a different piece of onus on me to do this or makes me actually look outside of the company because I better jump ship now before I get fired or laid off in six months. And so those words that are used and the context of what they're placed in and how people interpret them is this wonderful dance. I think the dance is a, no, dance is a great analogy because uh, there is this interplay, right? There's this balance, there's a rhythm to it all. And how are we going to create teams with psychological safety if we're not communicating successfully? If we're not fully communicating, because we're going to have that instantaneous and automatic response of judgment when we just hear the CEO say, we have to work really, we have to work harder because of these challenges in the market without the whole story of, you know, even though our business is up 10%, uh, other companies are ahead 15% and we feel like we want to be keeping pace with them. And it's not in all markets, it's just in in Europe. And we feel like it's more about innovation than it is about marketing or, you know, w- without whatever the context is, people are going to get freaked out and negativity bias is going to come to play. And guess what's going to happen? Uh, we're going to think badly and that's when people are going to jump ship. Yeah. This idea of the negativity bias and this element of we go to the negative on pieces. And it comes into framing, right? If you frame something as a loss, if you frame something as a gain, again, we've talked about this. It's some of the work that I do when working with companies around their incentives. Do you frame like, don't leave money on the table, which gets a very different context in somebody's mind versus look at how much you can earn. Yeah. And Yeah. Being purposeful about that. I think we do a good job. Most companies do a decent job when they're thinking about the words that they use and the inferences that people make in their outward communications, at least the advertising and that PR campaigns. They're very purposeful in that. They're less purposeful when it comes to the internal communications. Yes. And that has its drawbacks. It has its elements where it could cause damage, unintended damage to the way the company operates. And we need to put more focus on that. And think about that. If businesses did were, were more focused on that from an internal perspective, what does that mean for HR? What does that mean for sales? What does that mean for engineering? All of these different factors that come into play and how you do it. And again, you can't necessarily give somebody 
the entire background and history of the nope. thoughts and patterns that go into it. But be purposeful about your communication and think about how the words are going to be interpreted because people are going to try to interpret your intent from those. And that's a key piece that then ends up, you know, impacting how they behave and, they, and how they're motivated. How about if we talk about Woodstock? The largest concert in the history of humankind, the har- largest gathering like in the history of humankind up to that point, 500, the estimates range from 300 to little over 500,000. But now that I, can't be the biggest up to that point, can it? Yeah. yeah Seriously? Can, yeah. But that's a big damn crowd. <laughs> it <laughs> is. Now, Rob is. admitted there weren't 500,000 people there when by the time they played because it had rained and people were leaving. But, but even was, bigger than the 500,000 people that were there is the cultural impact that Woodstock had on the U.S. and as I mentioned in the beginning, maybe even the world, it's a defining point. It's this iconic element that people refer to that define a generation, that defines a era that put us in a different context as we're talking about context of how we think about the world. And it's this hippie, free love kind of connotation. If you mention Woodstock to people, people form an impression. They have that, they infer certain things about that time and about that event, which truth or not truth, it happens instantaneously because it has become such an iconic component within within our culture. I'm excited that we got to talk to one of the guys in one of the 32 bands that played. Like they're yes! like what 120, 130 people that performed at Woodstock. <laughs> and we we had this robust conversation with them about linguistics, which I think is pretty cool. But uh, and the band, of course, it was fantastic. And and Shanana was brought on because Jimi Hendrix, who oh my gosh, it's Jimi yeah. Hendrix. It's like the sky yeah. that you look at the world and what he did to change kind of rock and roll and various different pieces and the yeah. impact that he had is again just oversized yeah oversized thank you much better is he again linguistics right the choosing the right word um the idea that rob and shanana a college band out of columbia which is a glee club basically to begin with Yes. To then get on stage with these rock. And one of my siblings had the album and I was much older uh, when I first started listening to to that album. And what was always interesting to me was how the hell did Shana Na, how did they ever get onto this iconic world changing concert change? And now, now I know the story. Well, shows like the Broadway musical Grease, the movie Grease, Happy Days TV show, Joni Loves Chachi, all that stuff spun out of one simple idea that Rob and his brother had about creating a doo-wop 50s band with gold lame, you mm-hmm. know, outfits to, to do it in a rock and roll show. Amazing. And they got lucky. And Rob, you know, he never downplays the luck aspect of it, which I think is really cool. The the interesting part of this, too, is the connections of how this happened. You talked about luck, and luck is definitely part of this. But it is also the social connections that people 
people make. They they befriended Jimi Hendrix. Jimi Hendrix then liked them. We got introduced to Rob because of John Levy, because of this connection that we had. And I think there's a behavioral science aspect about those social connections. And if you haven't listened to our episode with John, uh, please do, because he talks about this, uh, that the quality of our life, and I keep coming back to this, so I'm Sorry, people, that you keep hearing me talk about this, but the quality of our life is based upon the conversations we have and the people that we have them with. And it has stuck with me, and it is a guiding principle that I'm looking at now. And I think it's the conversations and then who we have them with. And and the broader that range of people that we can have them with and the more interesting people that we can have those conversations with, the more interesting opportunities that then present themselves because we're having these great conversations that lead to, hey, how would you guys like to come up and play at Woodstock with me? Well, that's a good thought to end on. And with that, Groovers, we want to thank you for listening to our conversation with Rob and to listening to Kurt and I drone on and on about the wonderful <laughs> things that we think are interesting. And we hope that this week, you know, you give some thought to listening and just listening a little bit more carefully. Think about linguistics. Think about the words that you use. Think about the things that you're listening to and how carefully you listen um, as, you're, as you're going through your work days and your home life. And think about the words that you choose, particularly in business and with your loved ones. And what are they going to infer from those? And what is the context that they're hearing those in? And are you giving them the full story or just part of the story? And with that, Groovers, we hope that this week you go out and find your groove. Mm -hmm.